Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm um, a PhD student at the University of Kent. And today I have the privilege to talk to David Gordon Scott about his book, For Abolition. Welcome to the New, New Book Network podcast. And David, can you tell us who you are and what your research interests are, please? Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for inviting me on to this uh, podcast. It's really great to uh, to be contributing and to have an opportunity to speak about um, uh, For Abolition, which uh, is my most recent book. Um, I've been um, involved in uh, activism and research on prisons and punishment from a critical abolitionist perspective for nearly a quarter of a century. Um, I first got involved in terms of doing um, uh, kind of prison research back in 1996, and I did uh, quite an extensive amount of research in six prisons at that point. And then I did further research um, in the early noughties on prisons as well. Um, both at, at times I've, I kind of did my early research was looking uh, at issues around uh, prison staff, whether it be prison officers and prison chaplains. I've also been uh, involved in quite a lot of campaigning um, against prisons, against imprisonment. Um, and I feel very strongly that there is something quite profoundly wrong with the way in which our penal system works. And hence, I've become associated with the tradition which is known as penal abolitionism, which questions the very moral and political foundations of prisons and often punishment more broadly. So I've been in various different campaigns, um, including campaigns against the mega prisons, um, campaigning more broadly for uh, uh, legal rights of of prisoners. Uh, I've been involved in campaigns about the release of prisoners due to COVID-19 restrictions. And I've generally um, tried to argue in whatever kind of platform and whatever uh, situation where people are prepared to listen to ask us to think very very carefully about whether and how we justify punishment and indeed the very notion that, uh, that I like to raise is whether indeed punishment in prisons can in fact be justified at all. Yeah yeah so it's a totally different viewpoint say from prison reform in terms of like say the Howard League this is prison abolition yes I mean we mustn't kind of necessarily fall into an easy dichotomy between reform and abolition because that way sometimes you get the impression that abolitionists are not trying to engage in the present and are not trying to deal with the situation as it currently is and that is left to the penal reformers what penal reformers are trying to do is to try and to tweak and maintain the existing system, albeit with potentially a significant reduction in the size of that given system. But they don't question the very foundations and the very nature of the penal system or indeed the criminal process more broadly. What abolitionists do 
is they do question those very basic foundations. They do question the very assumptions upon which the criminal law and the criminal process are predicated upon. But that doesn't mean that they take a hands-off approach and simply say it's abolition or nothing. That would be a very crude and very unfair characteristic of penal abolitionism as it's existed in Britain for literally centuries and indeed as it exists over the rest of the world today because abolitionists are constantly calling for what are known as non-reformist or negative reforms. That is reforms to the current system which actually do not further legitimate it, do not further strengthen or provide a rationale which appears to justify the current forms of of prisons and punishment. What abolitionists call for is for very much to see interventions in the here and now that in some way or other will undermine that system, whether in the long term or the short term. So why this book and why now? Well, the book for abolition um, brings together a number of, of papers that I've been writing on uh, prisons and um, ethics over the last few years. I think right now it's it's very, very important to be engaging with these abolitionist ideas. We've seen a mass upsurge in abolitionism since um, the killing of George Floyd in, in America last year. And indeed, from all sorts of different uh, kind of levels, from grassroots right the way through, indeed, to to people involved in, in decision-making and policies. We've seen questions of both policing and, indeed, prisons and punishment in both the United States and the UK. And we've seen a groundswell of people actually saying no to more punishment, no to more prisons, and, indeed, questioning the very basis of what... Um, of what prisons and punishment are. So what For Abolition does, as the title indicates, it makes the case for abolition. It makes a a political and, of course, an ethical case for arguing uh, why we should be uh, thinking about abolishing the system rather than just minimising it or actually kind of continuing as we currently are. So the essays bring together a long-standing interest I've had in ethics and socialism. I'm very much would would situate myself as coming from a libertarian socialist perspective. And what I mean by libertarian socialist is somebody who's a non-authoritarian socialist. So somebody who would draw upon, for example, the ideas of Marxism, the ideas of anarchism, uh, the ideas of various different democratic socialists in different ways. And rather than being sectarian in terms of an understanding of of, uh, of of socialism, it would simply be one which identifies that socialism is absolutely key to freedom and liberation movements. And indeed, socialist ideas kind of inform a great deal of what abolitionist um, perspectives have, have been over the last few centuries and are today. So it's very much me picking up some of the strands of, of, of socialist ethics and the ideas of abolition and weaving them together to try and think through um, four key elements, which I think are important in terms of questioning the very nature of prisons and punishment. Okay, so before we go on and explore those four key elements, because I will ask you about those. So why did you choose to, to use a compilation of fragment writings? What was the thought processes behind that? Well, the fragmented writings are basically, I suppose... 
I've kind of I've written monographs in the past in terms of PhDs and master's thesis, and I've done various different kind of work. But this this was kind of a way of trying to weave together, I suppose, maybe my my maybe fragmented thoughts on this. And I thought that actually there was some elements, some leap motifs, which were kind of um, within my actual kind of my current writings. A number of nine essays in total, which are in the actual. Um, which are in the kind of volume. And I felt as if there was actually a narrative there. There was actually, although they were fragmented, though they were written in slightly different contexts, there actually was something which brought these together. And actually there was a strand, and that, of course, strand more generally is the argument for abolition. But as you say, we'll come to in a moment, some of the kind of more specific um, uh, aspects of the kind of ethics underscoring them and some of the kind of dimensions which, which are kind of central within a large number of the the chapters, but one thing that does unite them also is my uh, kind of engagement with Enrique Dussel. And Enrique Dussel is uh, an Argentinian Gramscian uh, socialist who isn't as well known in in the Western world as what he should be, quite frankly. He he, he wrote a number of uh, of books. In fact, he's still alive, and he, he wrote he'd written a number of books um, which explore different aspects of ethics. And, and and politics from a socialist perspective, and I read his his book, The Ethics of Liberation, which he published in 2013, a number of years ago, and I was blown away by it. Mm. And I kind of thought this guy has so much to offer, and he's written a number of books, including uh, a book of fragments himself, which is called Twenty Theses on Politics. Um, he's written a book of politics of 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 of, of liberation as well, and and he he kind of for me kind of seems to bring together some of the best aspects of socialism and ethics. And a lot of the essays which are in this uh, particular book, in fact, most of them, in fact, take inspiration in some way or other from the ideas of Enrique Dussel. So that was another kind of factor which was kind of bringing these together. So you have that kind of socialist ethics dimension, you have the abolitionist dimension, and... um, a bit like some of my earlier books, like Against Imprisonment, I felt that although the writing was a little bit fragmented, there was actually a kick, a clear case and a clear agenda that I could tease out, which um, would be interesting from an abolitionist perspective. So in the book, for example, there is no mass discussion of penal reforms. The last three chapters of the six are actually bringing out abolitionist kind of interventions. So okay. it's kind of, it's, it's, it's offering something, I hope, which is, is unique and is something which is talking about both in historical and contemporary context, some of the profound, deeply embedded issues that our penal system faces. So how does, how does For Abolition build on your previous book, Against Imprisonment? Well, what it does in terms of uh, building on Against Imprisonment, Against Imprisonment, which was published in um, 2018, um, effectively sets an agenda for thinking through what some of the core dimensions of abolitionism were um, in in the kind of contemporary period. So this was published, as I said, two, two well, three years ago now, in 2018, two years before uh, for abolition. And that book kind of teases out some of the core dimensions about what abolitionism is trying to get at. So thinking through notions of 
uh, crime and the kind of the, mm-hmm. and the relationship with harm. Thinking through um, notions of how we need to have a policy understanding as well. You know, be quite pragmatic in terms of actually moving forward with our understanding because you know we can very easily be defined out of the debate um, when it comes to things. Um, to things like, uh, you know, kind of prisons and punishment. Those on the left, those are very critical. So we need to be really totally up on those kind of agendas uh, concerning what's happening in terms of policy and the limitations of prison policy. Also thinking through um, those notions around the very nature and violence of incarceration, something which is built on um, when I talk about social death within uh, much more detail within uh, in, in for abolition, but that's something which that that underscoring violence of incarceration, the harms that are generated through incarceration, plus also notions of of what I describe um, in um, in in um, and against imprisonment as working towards a real utopia, working okay. towards real utopian interventions. And whilst in, in in against imprisonment, I do give a number of of examples of what those real utopia. Um, alternatives would be from an abolitionist perspective and whether that be kind of placing the victim at the center whether that be kind of looking at more uh, mediation in terms of uh, dealing with issues as well as of course trying to grapple with some of the wider socio-economic uh, factors which are so important for understanding why prisons continue to persist as they do in the present. Cool. So in the introduction, um, you say that the focus of this book is on harms and injuries that are less talked about. How does the book explore this? Well, what I kind of, I guess I'm trying to tease out there is this notion that when we're talking about um, issues to do with prisons and punishment, certainly from an abolitionist perspective, we're often talking about harms which are relatively invisible. Mm. Um, and which uh, have been relatively kind of neglected and pushed to one side, but also, and this is the other key element to this, which are, uh, are attempted to be legitimated. And it's, that, it's those notions of um, uh, visibility and legitimacy, which actually are quite significant strands within a number of of, of, of chapters in the book. Now, one way that I try to actually highlight both the invisibility of many of the different penal harms, and I'm thinking here in terms of invisibility within the popular and media discourses at, at times, but also within the official data and the official reports mm. and official rhetoric. That's not to say these things aren't touched on in some way, but they're not necessarily kind of grappled with. They're often kind of pushed to one side as being the result of bad apples or being something which is a bad prison. And I think for for me, many of the issues which are then covered in in the book, um, which highlight these harms, and I'm thinking here in terms of harms around kind of deaths, harms in terms of quite strong physical violence and cultures of violence, um, harms in terms of the indignities 
that uh, people are confronted to confronted with in terms of a daily penal regime, harms of what I describe as institutionally structured violence, in which there is something uh, almost like a, a broken glass that people have to walk through just by trying to survive the penal yeah. environment. There's something really, really toxic about prisons, which is very hard for us to articulate. And I talk about that, for example, in terms of things like the experience of time and how time and the waste of time and the waste of life are absolutely fundamental to the way in which uh, prisons operate. Indeed, as is things like the generation of death consciousness, the generation of suicidal ideation. Yeah. So uh, the way I try and tease that out, though, is by drawing upon um, historical and contemporary autobiographies of prisoners and prison staff. So whilst you do have a small number of uh, a kind of people who engage with prison officer autobiographies and a small number of, perhaps a larger number of, of academics have engaged with um, prisoner autobiographies. Very rarely have people looked at both side by side in terms of trying to generate evidence of the long-term, persistent, invisible harms of incarceration, which question its very fundamental basis as a moral, uh, morally and politically justified institution, i.e. that question its legitimacy. And yeah. through those kind of various different testimonies, which um, in the first six chapters of the book, um, they are kind of various different uh, kind of uh, reflections from uh, prisoners and prison officers and of course I, I kind of when it came to prison officers I guess I, I read certainly up until the last couple of years I've read pretty much nearly every prison officer autobiography that was written um, going back to the 1890s actually and the very first one which was on Lancaster prison and uh, kind of uh, which actually starts to kind of give an account from 1861 onwards of a prison officer's uh, kind of experience. But prison officer autobiographies have largely been ignored in, in academia as well as uh, more widespread uh, kind of public debate. So by bringing out their testimony, by hearing what prison officers said, and indeed then finding from that that they very much in the main um, had arguments and ideas and experiences and perceptions of prison which were almost identical to those being portrayed by prisoners and the prisoner voice is often seen as much more marginal much more to the periphery uh, because they're prisoners and they will be seen as um, voices that can be easily discredited and you'll find in official reports such as the wolf report which was one of the most significant liberal reports which literally just um, a few months ago had its 25th anniversary hmm. uh, uh, kind of th this this kind of is a is, is a report which basically uh, looked at the 1991 uh, sorry the 1990 uh, strange ways disturbances disturbances in um in uh, in, in the UK yeah. and basically what wolf argued was that sometimes um, you could actually discount the voice of, of, of prisoners. And I think that's kind of one of the key elements, again, to raise that visibility, to raise that questions of legitimacy, is to hear in their own words the first-hand accounts of people who've been there. And one yeah. of the things that abolitionism is very much uh, centred on is actually having that voice and having that input from people who have been directly involved. 
that it's not about a policymaker or a politician who comes along and gives their uh, perception and their account of what's actually happened. It's very much hearing from the people who know it. Who yeah, know the lived very, experience. Very yes. Yeah. I mean, one of my uncles was in Strange Ways when it when it kicked off in Strange Ways, Gosh. and it's hardly surprising that they don't want to hear the voice of lived experience because of the things that he told me about what happened. He was actually one of the people on the roof. Um, So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. But what it really made me think as well is that, you know, the prison, as much as we'd like to think of it as an enclosed environment, it's not, is it? So that kind of the, the social harms of like imprisonment go trickle down for generations. I mean, I, you know, I did some sort of like, you know, like (laughs) I looked at the local papers, like in the area where I lived at and lived and I found my granddad in 1945. Yeah, I was getting nicked for for riding a bike with no lights on, got nicked for finding a dog that belonged to to a hunt. 30, 40 years later, one of my cousins is getting nicked for a ram raising Lord Rothschild's house with a JCB because actually what happens is when you start to get within that carceral system, it's not just you that gets brought into the carceral system, but multi-generations of your prison, I mean, of your family get drawn into the prison system. I mean, you know, Bromley Briefing is quite interested in this context. You know, like, you know, if your dad's been to prison, I think you've got 50% chance of going. If your mum's been to prison, you've got 70% chance of going. If they've both been, you might as well just go and put on a grey tracks and go and bang on the door because you're going to prison. You know, it's multi-generational, isn't it? So there's the, and I got that from this book. This is a seedbed for not just the sort of things that you cover in the book, but lots of other social harms that that are totally invisible and that people might kind of, you know, academics might get a sniff of, but we never get the full picture. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I I think kind of just to add a little bit to what you kind of, uh, the conversation pointer you've started, because that's really, really important to to understand the way in which the prison is directed against certain communities and certain Mm. people. And I suppose the first thing we need to do then, of course, is whilst there may well be petty illegalities involved in the kind of people who are imprisoned or historically have been imprisoned, and of course there may well be people imprisoned for very serious harms as well, but in the main, we find that the prisons have been used and directed against certain populations. Now, that's not the same as saying these people are the most criminal. And, you know, we kind of we have to kind of then unpack that and recognise that that there's all sorts of harms perpetrated by states uh, and corporations. In fact, the biggest harms and the biggest forms of, uh, of, of damage to us as individuals, to us as communities, to us as societies and nations come from states. Uh, states yeah. are the biggest killers. Corporations are involved in all sorts of mass kind of uh, serial deaths over various different kind of ways. And we, we kind of we could kind of get into the situation around Grenfell in terms of, you know, kind of a mass number of deaths, 72 deaths, and where that kind of the situation lies to is is with the kind of the the, the situation in terms of um, policy context, um, you know what people have called social murder, um, mm. and the kind of broader uh, kind of uh, corporate kind of uh, potential corporate negligence and so on and so forth that could well come into yeah. play. We won't know for many years yet just exactly how the uh, Grenfell situation is going to be interpreted. But what we do know is that the vast majority. Of, of people who do the more serious harms never end up in prison. Yeah, exactly. And, if it was efficient, it would be full of rich old white men, wouldn't it? Yeah, and, and in terms of things like, um, you know, I've mentioned their social murder, where kind of, because we often think about serial killers and people get really into that, and actually the biggest serial killers are 
those in the who have the most power in society. Exactly. Um, and then when it comes to issues around sexual violence, domestic violence, and I cover this in the final chapter of, of for abolition, um, when we start to look at the kind of issues around that and whether we, we pick at, at rape, which of course we've got massive kind of discussions going on in the popular media about the failure of the criminal process to adequately address rape. The same thing can be said for domestic and sexual violence, um, that for those, the more serious harms that kind of are happening in society, um, the prison is not being used to deal with them. And as you say, no. it would be written white men. It never has been. And it, no, it, it kind of... Was. And and that's so we cut, but then your other point was then about kind of the the kind of the collateral consequences, the human consequences, and the spread, um, or what's known as orbiter punishment of the actual um, of of penal incarceration, because it's not just the people who are sent to prison who actually fear, um, uh, sorry, feel the uh, the negative and harmful effects of incarceration. So, you know, we know that there's many, many children, uh, more than 100,000 children who have parents in custody at any one time. We know that, mm. um, as you mentioned, that if you have had somebody in your family who's been incarcerated, that that does have uh, a, a greater likelihood of, of that young person uh, than ended up in prison themselves so we know it kind of it's a revolving door for people in prison yeah. we know that it has a kind of and it negatively impacts upon these people's lives and it can it can lead to all sorts of kind of quite direct damage on um on families so people maybe just lost the breadwinner so there's less money coming into the house children have to deal with the, with um not having one of their parents around children might end up in care and we know that a child in care is much more likely to end up in prison in the future so we know that when you get this accumulation of negative things in in broader life whether that be in terms of family educational attainment whether in terms of kind of working opportunities when you start to get a number of these different factors coming in when you start to get people who are being told from day one that they're worthless and they have no value when you find that they they can't uh, for whatever kind of issue they're being excluded from school because of educational attainment that they kind of are finding it difficult to get a job that they're finding the only way they're getting some kind of peer esteem is by doing certain illegalities where they can actually get some kind of esteem from from their peers in terms of other young people because it looks cool or it looks hard or whatever when you start bringing all these things together and you look at how the criminal process and indeed how policing works in terms of its focus on as it turns out, people disproportionately from uh, black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds, but also people from impoverished backgrounds more broadly. When you start yeah. to bring those class dimensions in, when you start to bring in um, dimensions around age, sexuality, um, ability, um, perceived race and so on and so forth, you start to get an image, as you said, which is very clear in things like the Bromley briefings, that you have a certain group of people whether they've done something particularly bad or not, who are much more likely to end up in being incarcerated. And it's because the argument is from abolitionists and others, it's not what you've done, it's who you are. And if you, if you fit a particular stereotype, a particular category of suspicion, a particular category of risk, then the criminal law is much more likely to come down on you more heavily than those rich white people who've had all the privileges and benefits who may actually be kind of in, be engaging in all sorts of profoundly damaging and harmful behaviours, mm. which 
Maybe they don't intend to have deadly or negative outcomes, but that might be the result of policies that they're actually engaging with, or indeed with kind of cost-cutting exercises in terms of health and safety and so on and so forth. Exactly. I mean, you're more likely to be killed by a drive-through than a drive-by, yeah, but we don't see Ronald McDonald lurking behind the bars, which kind of, and this, what you've just said kind of brings me on to my next point. So, where do you see this book sitting within wider sort of critical literature that recognises the harm, injury and victimisation that lie outside the boundaries of criminal law? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that this this book um, kind of brings a number of, 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 of different kind of elements to certainly British uh, abolitionist uh, kind of thought. And I think, um, you know, th- there's there's been a wide... Um, set of, of of abolitionist literature going back quite frankly uh, in the UK for more than 200 years so let, yeah. let's kind of be honest there's kind of abolitionist ideas are not new no fact, they, they run they run concurrently with the prison don't they uh, they, they've pretty much been. Uh, I mean, it depends how far you go back, but it, it wouldn't be uh, kind of uh, too unfair to go back to 1791 when William Gold- Godwin uh, was kind of writing his book on the political inquiry concerning justice, where he kind of questioned from an abolitionist perspective the very nature of prisons and punishment. And of course, it was that similar time in the 1790s when you had the emergence of the first reform prisons. So you can yeah. actually see. Um, in, in certainly in the UK, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's pretty much in, in most countries all around the world, where you can find abolitionist ideas and abolitionist sentiments have been explored and expressed at various different times um, and, and critique of, of the reform prison. And this book, of course, is part of that tradition. It's part of that within this kind of obviously current kind of moment, this current moment of, uh, I think, the importance of of having a very clear and specific set of kind of uh, ideas around why our prisons uh, are failing. So, you know, I could kind of cite you a number of kind of, of, of great abolitionist books, which I wouldn't even dare put my kind of books alongside because they're so brilliant, you know, but but things like, you know, Thomas Matheson's The Politics of Abolition from 1974, um, you know, um, Nils Christie's uh, work on the limits of pain, um, <laughs> you know, Rennie Van Swanigan's work, Joe Sims' work, all these uh, amazing people who have contributed to the ideas that have been generated um, within um, kind of abolitionism in, in in the UK and beyond, and as I say, I kind of wouldn't really want to put myself on a pedestal along those people, but they are the people that I respect and I admire, yeah. and they're the people who yeah. inspired me in terms of moving forward with, me with this book and me others. Um, I taught I taught um, a module sociology of imprisonment um, at the University of Kent, and um, I was given total free range to teach what I want, I wanted. So, you know, I was using Joe Sims. I was using the examples of, you know, sort of prison as a as an as a political space. It's very political. Prison is not apolitical at all. You know, um, so the book claims to critique imprisonment through a consideration of social ethics. Can yes. you tell us how the book does that? Okay, well, yes. So basically, the 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 ethics which I've I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier come from a, a number of different kind of source of inspiration. One, of course, is um, Enrique Dussel, uh, who I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, the great Argentinian uh, socialist, uh, but also people like Peter Kropotkin. 
Mm. And uh, Peter Kropotkin, uh, uh, perhaps one of the the, the, the the earliest sophisticated abolitionist thinker, um, writing about, of course, his own experiences in, uh, in French and Russian prisons back in the 1880s, um, but also kind of with a very clear moral and ethical kind of uh, set of kind of uh, uh, agendas which are associated with his imagination and with his understanding of, of the social world. So I, I took inspiration from people like Gramsci, people like Bauman, Zygmunt Bauman, the great, uh, uh, great uh, sociologist, but also great ethical thinker. Um, and, uh, you know, I tried to kind of pick out four, four core themes or four co-elements which uh, reflected the chapters but also I think help us to really think through the ethics that we kind of want to be kind of thinking about in terms of, of prison and punishment so I kind of from um, from various different people like uh, Kropotkin the notion of freedom the f- ethics as a form of freedom but ethics as, as, as freedom in the sense of the, the way in which that's freedom not just in terms of being completely free and doing whatever we want, but freedom in the context of our responsibilities for others, of course, and freedom in the sense it's freedom from some of the existential weight of mm. being isolated. So freedom and community are not necessarily in contradiction at all. They actually can sit together. Freedom and relationships are really, really important. Indeed, relationships is something, and relational aspects of ethics, are, of course, is something else which really sits right at the heart of, of the book. Um, so I think I wanted to really bring out the notion of freedom um, and why that was so important, particularly in the context of the curtailment of freedom or the lack of freedom. Yeah. So, you, and in, in certain ways, the kind of ethics, whilst I wouldn't say I, I want to kind of have a totally binary kind of um, kind of dimension to this, I, I kind of I suppose I was almost thinking through the issue of freedom alongside that of the denial of freedom, the removal of yeah. freedom, which is, of course, the prison place. I also kind of thought that, uh, and again, this is another uh, ethics or aspect of ethics, which has a has a history going back to Kant and, and many others, um, but dignity. Now, dignity is something which, again, has been profoundly central, just like freedom to socialist ethics. Um, none of these are restricted to the prison place. Uh, you know, these are ethics which actually guide us more broadly. But of course, I thought these were particularly pertinent because we often can kind of see what we should have by when it's been removed or denied. Mm. And one of the kind of central elements that I wanted to kind of bring out in the book was just how undignified the prison place is. And of course, I drew upon examples and illustrations from the, the own words of both prisoners and prison officers to really kind of to make that indignity, uh, as uh, which is absolutely central. I mean, you talked there about your kind of your own family's experience of strange ways, and strange ways back in in, in 1990 was was rooted in slopping out. They now have toilets in some cells, and uh, not all, by the way, but more virtually all cells have toilets in them now. But that does that actually remove the indignity? of the kind of situation, whether you're, you're kind of having to urinate and defecate into a bucket and when there's other people in the cells, or whether you're having to urinate or defecate into a toilet whilst there's other people in the cells, I'm not really sure that that kind of is a massive kind of step forward. It may well be kind of easy on the sewerage and easy on the smells perhaps, but it certainly doesn't remove all the kind of forms of indignity. So that second element of the four key ethics I wanted to bring out was the notion of, of dignity. Alongside that, and for me, 
increasingly, I suppose, as I'm moving forward with my work, one of the kind of ethics which I find particularly important is empathy. And I think in the book, I bring out, I guess, the opposite of empathy in terms of moral indifference. Yeah. And the fact that people just don't seem to care. The ability to distance and other uh, individuals. And again, it's not just restricted to prisoners and people in prison. It's, it's of course, something which happens in a much, much wider context in terms of, of, of othering and the denial of empathy for people who are suffering. And I think I wanted to bring out that notion of the consequences that you actually see when you have that denial of of people's other other people's humanity, the kind of consequences of moral indifference, the degrading nature of of prison when you actually have that inability of somebody to, to relate to somebody else as another human being, yeah, that can be breached. There is uh, evidence in the book that I cite of both prisoners and prison officers talking about there being. Uh, connections between them, um, connections between other prisoners, connections and solidarity uh, among prison officers and so on and so forth. But the fact that there's such a deficit of empathy, the fact there's such a deficit of this notion of how do we actually respond to somebody else who's suffering? Because prisons are places of profound suffering. They are places of, of profound violence and harm and injury, as you mentioned right at the top of yes. this uh, at the top of this this discussion, and yet the fact is that people don't see it. They refuse to see it. They block it out. They kind of yeah. say, for whatever reason, that that person is no longer part of my moral universe, and I just simply don't care. And there's some terribly sad examples of even where people have have got to uh, a situation where they're attempting to take their own lives or they're self harming, and prison officers. Are simply turning a blind eye to that, which is, is quite yeah. frankly um, kind of appalling. But I argued that this is actually structured within the very nature of the penal regime because there is so much suffering, there is so much need that's being generated by the deprivations of incarceration that people get overwhelmed by that and they start to switch off and they start to actually kind of to look away because actually if they keep on looking at it, what will that do to them? You know, yeah. kind of none of us really want to be consumed by suffering and consumed by hurt and injury, but prisons are seeped in those things. And you know, people have been starting to talk about that in recent weeks following the BBC um, program Time, the Jimmy McGovern mm-hmm. drama, three parts um, with Stephen Graham. Um, and, and kind of a number of other kind of uh, really brilliant actors, including Sean Bean, who kind of have brought that out and the empathy that people can kind of see as being denied within the prison place is absolutely profound so again that dichotomy of empathy to moral indifference and then the fourth yeah. strand which is taken directly from Enrique Dussel um, but I, I would have to say that there are many many others who've talked about the importance of the distinction between life and death in terms of thinking about abolitionism but also social theory more broadly but Dussel is kind of somebody who who's been arguing this for quite a number of years and as I say kind of not necessarily picked up by uh, by Western uh, kind of a non-South American kind of thinkers very much outside of the post-colonial context where he's also had a massive contribution but he talks about this thing called the paradigm of life yeah. And I I was blown away by that idea, uh, particularly when I mirrored that alongside social death. And this, again, is kind of the backbone of the book, is kind of, is really 
kind of bring out not just those ethics around freedom and empathy and treating everybody with dignity and respect, but also the fact that as a society, what we should be looking to do is to promote the paradigm of life, to promote institutions and organisational structure, which leads to human well-being and leads to the furtherance of human life. And what the prison yeah. does, it actually, it curtails life. It curtails life in terms of both um, actually corporeal uh, life in terms of our lived experiences, our physical entities as, as human beings in the present being alive, in other words. It leads to uh, kind of death in terms of literal death, uh, yeah. corporeal death, as in self-inflicted death, but other forms of death, whether that be COVID-related or, or otherwise. And it also leads to what's known as social death. And one of the things yeah. that this book kind of looks at, it, it looks at kind of social death on four different dimensions, drawing upon uh, the ideas of social death, going back to slavery, because it was very much recognised that um, social death was people who were kind of denied voice. Um, they were seen as uh, kind of in a context of violence. There were also people who were kind of treated with a lack of indignity. And also, I think what I argue in this book, it can lead to death consciousness. Um, that actually we, we have a massive problem of suicidal ideation and self-harm within prisons. Yeah. We have hundreds of people dying within prisons and we've had um, very, very large numbers, 80 and 90 odd people dying uh, by taking their own lives in prisons in England and Wales in recent years. Yeah. Prisons are places which are characterised by people attempting to take in their own lives, cutting themselves, inserting objects into themselves, harming themselves. That, of course, may be a way of survival. I'm not kind of saying that there's a direct or necessarily direct link between self-harm and, 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 and people taking their own lives because, of course, self-harm can be a survival strategy as well. But the massive amount of people in prison who want to take their own lives or have thought about taking their own lives because they've lost hope, they've lost yeah. any sense of hope for the future, that the whole notion of future has, has evaporated before them. And those aspects yeah. of social death, I think, uh, uh, are what this book brings out. And I think in a British context, that hasn't really been kind of massively kind of elaborated on in terms of I don't death. think in the British context we really consider the prisoners as a criminogenic space. There's a tendency to look at it as almost being a sterile place. But, you know, what you're saying about self-harm, I do know that the rates of self-harm have always been really high in female prisoners, but have really escalated in male prisoners. And whether whether self-harm is a, a precursor to sort of suicidal ideation, I don't know. But both of them are, are, are evidential of high levels of trauma within yep. someone. Yep, you're, you're creating a really, really traumatic environment, which in itself is not free of crime. You know, I mean, I, I remember reading some horrific stuff that was going on in Pentonville. There's about four or five prison officers suspended. Any other public institution where so many people are being suspended because of their criminal activity, there would be massive investigation. But that's not the case with the prison because actually we absolve responsibility. We assume it's a sterile place where we can safely store people until they know how to behave. And it really, really isn't. It really isn't. So I liked what you said about you, you, your use of a jigsaw metaphor to describe six ethical dilemmas that happen in the prison space. What are those dilemmas? Well, 
what I'm kind of trying to bring out uh, more broadly, I mean, we'll go through those kind of in, in kind of specifics in a moment, but what I'm trying to bring out is the fact that prison is the puzzle that we can't solve. So what I, again, and it, I'm sounding very much like a binary and dichotomy thinker here, <laughs> because what I try and do at the start of the book, which of which these themes actually then in different ways start to play out in the remaining chapters. But just very briefly, I'll just give you a couple of these kind of examples. I, I try and think through kind of... <sighs> When we kind of argue we've got a problem with a prison, what do we do to solve it? So just let's take one for, for a starting point. So we have the issue of kind of, of work in prisons. And this is kind of so you have you have one side, you have this sense of prisons can be places of profound idleness. And uh, so people say, oh, well, we don't want that. So what we need to do is we need to give them work. Yeah. And you think, oh, that solved the puzzle. You know, we've solved now the problem of prison idleness, but unfortunately not, because actually when you change the pieces around, you actually end up with a different set of kind of ethical dilemmas and problems. You have this problem then that you have the problem of penal servitude and you have the problem of mass labour exploitation and penal slavery. Exactly. So so you you kind of you think, you know, when you're looking at kind of work in prison, you're caught between this really these two horns of the dilemma, which is kind of, you know, having people who are idle. So they're kind of wasting away. The days seem longer. Um, You have kind of situations where people can ossify and they can become more institutionalized. And many of the pains of incarceration can be exacerbated by being isolated and being kind of without anything to do. But then at the time you have this kind of if you do try and bring in work you simply fall in the trap of, of slavery um, yeah but also so, as well you have some seriously uh, impactful uh some serious impacts outside the prison if you've got an unpaid prison labor force how is the trade union ever going to have any power i mean well, how's how's the trade union going to be able to negotiate that and i mean we get into that discussion then about what was happening in the american south over the last couple of years with these mass strikes about you know the the fact the the prison space becoming a factory space yep. that is run twenty four hours a day again for for corporate benefit. Yeah, and I mean, there's some people call this a prison industrial complex, and kind of where they talk about the relationship between um, kind of prisons and labour exploitation. It's kind of it's complicated because um, you see it comes down to the design of the prisons. So you have kind of some prisons which have kind of go back to the early Victorian designs where they're not really kind of set up for having kind of any form of, of kind of labour or any kind of work. And I remember I was uh, not so long back, I was uh, actually maybe three or four years ago now, maybe 2017, I think, uh, I went down and was invited to go to Swansea uh, Prison. And I remember kind of going on the wings and talking to some of the prison officers about the kind of work they were doing there. And they had various different discussions about kind of the kind of work that was actually being undertaken at this old prison. And it was largely things like they talked about work for, for prisoners as cleaning the, the kind of the floors, you yeah. know, doing the cleaning. And they had a couple of people who were in sessions in preparation for work, which they classed as work and purposeful activity. And then they had a very small number of people doing really mundane kind of tasks, like effectively you know, kind of um, doing the all kind of, you know, sewing together all kind of mailbags kind of idea. 
that's kind of hardly any use for anybody at any kind of point. But of course, a lot of, of prison labour is for an internal market. So they get from other prisons as well as external markets. So it's, it's quite complicated. But where we're at with this today, of course, is the new mega prisons that are being proposed. And this is actually something I do talk about in Against Prisonment and also um, a little bit about the Wigan um, uh, kind of prison uh, proposed uh, at Hindley um, in, in I think chapter chapter seven or chapter eight of the book, where it basically kind of looks at the kind of what was proposed there, which of course they're proposing now um, prisons which are set up where they have the kind of the the prisoners more dispersed and being much closer to um, industrial workshops. So yeah. you know they're very much in mind is this idea of 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 having uh, kind of um, of prisons as places for work. Now this is really interesting to put in the context of policy. And again, I do this in um, in. In, in against um, imprisonment and also a previous book I did called Controversial Issues in Prisons, which looked in more detail at things like mental health and suicidal mm-hmm. ideation in prisons. Um, but what we had in policy terms, and this is a kind of interesting thing, which kind of feeds into that debate directly, is up until about 2010, we had an understanding of rehabilitation as being about mental health problems and yeah. being about treatment. And so all the kind of talk that you had from really the 1990s through the early noughties was about kind of rehabilitation and it being about kind of having uh, dealing with people who've got mental health problems, giving them the appropriate care because people with mental health problems are not necessarily going to be the world's greatest labourers. In 2010, when you got the coalition, the 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 the, the Tory um, Liberal coalition came in, you had then the talk of the rehabilitation revolution, and there wasn't really a massive amount of revolution in this, except for the fact that they changed from their understanding of rehabilitation from that of being around treatment to that of training. Mm. So it went from being a focus on mental health to a focus on uh, labour. And kind of and, and work. So since 2010, for the last 11 years, we've had much more emphasis on this idea of prisons being places of, of labour and work. But that wasn't the case in 2009. So when I was writing Controversial Issues in Prisons, which was published in 2010, I was making very strong claims and assertions about this notion, you know, that prisons are kind of have this massive kind of data on mental health problems. Now, that's all kind of been transformed in the last 11 years. But it's because the political agenda changed, then the policy agenda changed, and then the interpretation of what prisons were about changed from one of dealing with uh, health-promoting prisons to one in which it's about labour and work. And that's only one of the kind of dilemmas that I kind of highlight at the top of the book. But I'm pleased you've kind of you've gone into that with me because you know we could go into other ones, but that kind of in a nutshell is what yeah. the ethical dilemmas are trying to kind of bring out. But that's it's really interesting as well, isn't it? Because it kind of calls to mind as well that the sort of that the role of rehabilitation somehow, you know, is like we'll train you to work. But actually, if 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 there if there was any actual sort of real incentive to do that, well, at the same time as you've got the growth of prisons, you've got the growth of the universities. So if you wanted to really rehabilitate people, you'd send people straight from prison to university. It would be a perfect crossover it would be you know a perfect exchange of one institution for a slightly less onerous one it would be a really good way to rehabilitate people but I don't see that discussion going on but what I do see is like universities exploiting prisons in terms of the inside out like programs you know 
um, yeah. where students get taken to, to be taught well, with prisoners. I'm pleased you raised it because I work at the Open University. And of course, um, I mean, this is different to the inside out. So mm. the Open University has had kind of been delivering education in, in prisons in a different way. Um, since 19, early 1970s. And uh, one of my PhD students is actually looking at OU education in the context of the north of Ireland and the H-blocks and how that kind of, how various different undergraduate modules were kind of informing uh, kind of political ideas mm. alongside everything else. It's very difficult to isolate one strand of anything. But yeah, I think kind of it is. It's the OU probably has a slightly different take on this, and that totally. we have tried to kind of, you know, try to kind of do. Uh, I mean, I've, I run a big um, uh, level one module called DD One Hundred Five Introduction to Criminology, which has something like fifty, sixty prisoners kind of on it across both presentations in, in a given year. And you know, we have been exacerbated by the lack of support prisoners have had you know, in, in lockdown and we kind of have such sympathy and empathy for our, our kind of students because, you know, they just not, don't have a chance. They've got everything stacked against them. They're not getting access to the materials. Um, and, you know, the whole COVID situation in prisons has been quite quite appalling. And, you know, it's something which Joe Sim and I kind of, um, we kind of got involved in a, in a legal case uh, about March last year to try and get a prisoner who was terminally ill released. Um, and in, in the long term, it was successful, but it actually came after the court case, which was kind of ended in a bit of a stalemate. Um, but, you know, that situation of education and healthcare in prisons, it's appalling. And it's the key word that comes back again and again is less eligibility. Yeah. And, that, and this is where that kind of empathy notion comes in, why it's so important to see people and treat them with dignity and value as a fellow human being. Because as soon as we start to devalue somebody, as soon as we put them into that space in our minds that they're not as important as other people or, or people that we care about and so on and so forth once we do that then you know people are not as interested if their health care isn't as good they're not as interested if their educational support is non-existent they're not interested um you know if they're kind of having all sorts of problems with kind of uh, work and and kind of or, or there's this, this, this kind of other broader factors going on and you mentioned prisons earlier as being criminogenic it might not be widely acknowledged but of course prisons have a capacitating effect on harmful behaviors as well yeah. um, you know they can actually generate because of the close proximity and we know that that can come from prison officers and this yeah. again is one of those invisible legitimated uh, kind of aspects of the prison place in terms of the harms that, are done that I mentioned in one of the chapters where, um, you know, we have people like the Committee for the Prevention of Torture and, and, and others kind of coming along and identifying that prison officers are deliberately kind of being violent uh, to passive prisoners. And yet yeah. this has never been picked up by our own kind of, um, you know, our own kind of inspectorate. It's not being picked up by kind of the various different bodies which are there to monitor prisons, you know. No. So much remains hidden, so much remains unsaid, so much remains kind of placed into that kind of secret zone of the prison place where people really do not know what's going on. So I hope that one of the things that For Abolition does do by giving a voice and by adopting um, that argument of what I call the ethical hermeneutics, by placing that voice at the centre of the lived experience, at the centre of the discussion, giving them direct words from 
people who've been there about exactly what prison does to them and what other prison officers and what other prisoners are kind of doing in prisons right now, today, as we're kind of speaking, and the horrible abuses that are occurring inside those prison walls for the the, the kind of... Uh, you know, more than 70-odd thousand people in prison and the fear that we're going to have by the next couple of years more than 100,000 people in prison. And certainly there's a mass kind of 18,000 kind of a kind of building program, spaces building pro- program going on, which means there is no kind of current sense that our prisons are actually not working. Um, and yeah. yet we need to somehow get that message out there. And I think it's just the truth. I think it's and just. It's, and when you look at it in conjunction with the new policing and sentencing bill that's making its way through the through through uh, Parliament as we speak, I mean, you know, there's there's certain groups of people that are going to be entirely victimised by that who are already victimised. I'm thinking in particular of like Gypsy and, and Roma travellers, especially that really sort of picked up in that bill. Yeah. But I also, as well, I think it's really important that we make people think about actually, you know. I think it was, again, a Bromley briefing I read where 50% of people that tried heroin for the first time tried it in prison. You know, that there is, like, the 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 impact of the prison expands beyond the prison walls and expands a long time. You know, like, I don't know if people are aware of this, but, you know, if you've been to prison, it's really difficult for you to get insurance. You know, it's really difficult to get insurance. You need to sort of, like, you know, there are, there are people that help you, you know, to answer a questionnaire honestly, but, uh, you know, to evade, evade sort of like, you know, mentioning of your prison sentence. But that type of stuff keeps people within the carceral grasp for a long time after they need to be there. Yeah. I, I mean, there's an argument that that's kind of actually quite a deliberate thing to keep people yeah. down when they're down. And and again, it's, it's a point which was made. Uh, by people like Thomas Matheson many, many years ago. Uh, so sadly, Thomas Matheson died this year. And I must admit, you know, I want to kind of, I was devastated to to yeah. hear that because he's somebody who I've taken personal inspiration from. He, he wrote a forward to one of my books, um, uh, uh, Why Prison. I've had correspondence with him because we also at AG Press helped to to publish his um, his autobiography or professional biography. And he's been a, a massive loss for abolitionism yeah. Um, this year, and and but but he he's, his ideas will continue, and and you know we need to kind of make sure that we continue talking about some of the brilliant, many many brilliant ideas that uh, Thomas Matisse brought forth in the last fifty years. But one of them was he talked about not in a crude way because it might sound a little bit crude when I when I put it across. But he was he put it across quite in a quite sophisticated manner. But the way in which when you have people kind of at the bottom who are, who can be easily blamed and easily seen as the enemy and can can draw our attention in terms of societal kind of ills and we can place them on the shoulders of those people even if they haven't necessarily done a massive a lot of things wrong they might have difficulties in life they might not necessarily be the most pleasant people in the world they might kind of have various different issues and and have various different needs which have been unaddressed for all their lives there could be all sorts of different factors which are going on there but if we focus on those with with a kind of negative punitive gaze then we also kind of lead them down a pathway towards incarceration but at the same time we don't look above we don't look at the people who are doing the greatest harms. We don't look at the corporations. We don't look at the health and safety breaches. We don't look at the policies which actually lead to all sorts of mass deaths, um, whether that be through austerity or whether it be through kind of inadequate COVID, which we're finding in many countries around the world. Um, we kind of lose sight 
of where actually the biggest harms are and who the yeah. biggest perpetrators are. So we get our kind of enemies within. We get our yeah. people to kind of look at. And yet they have not done the greatest harms in the main. Exactly. So then you have to ask yourself, are we losing sight or are we being deliberately distracted? And I suspect you and I belong to the same camp. So we're almost at the end of the hour. So who did you write this book for? Well, I, I wrote this book um, for uh, activists and people who I, I hope will actually uh, want to kind of get involved in, in social movements and engage and respond to the kind of issues that we're facing as a society. And also um, in terms of, um, you know, both the, the harms of the criminal process and prisons in particular, but also the great injustices that are happening in wider society. So I wrote this as, I guess... <laughs> A little bit of a kind of information booklet for people yeah. to cite. You know, I, I hope it's written in a straightforward manner. I hope it's it's written kind of for anybody who wants to kind of have some greater insight and maybe wants to then move from empathy to solidarity and response. Yeah. And I think for those people who do want to respond, who do want to kind of have an ethical underpinning for that response, who do want to be informed, who do want to see things from a slightly different angle, um, to those that are presented in the wider media, that I think this book would be for them. But I, I specifically wrote it for many of the activists that I've been kind of engaging in campaigns with over recent years over the, with the mega prisons, because I think it's that- a perfect book for students. I was thinking this when I was reading it. Like I said, I I taught on like I taught on Roger Matthews um, module. Yeah, uh, when he was still with us, God bless him. Um, and uh, you know, it would have been perfect. <laughs> it would have been absolutely perfect for second, well, maybe third year students to actually get a better idea of what prison is really like. Yeah. Because, you know, people who are not engaged with people in prison, they get their knowledge of prison either from the television yeah. or, you know, occasionally from a university where you know you'll be taken to prison to do a module in the prison but you don't actually you know get to see how a prison impacts are you know sort of like you know like you don't get a sense of how the time drags in prison you don't get the sense of the importance of time and I think that this really brings into the fore there's a few things that you say about you know, about prisoners being sort of with phantom faces because people don't see them. You talk about the time spent in prison, re-traumatising old trauma. And that's what I think this book does really brilliantly is it brings into the fore just the heaviness of time in prison. You know, there's nothing worse than brushing your teeth six times a day just to fill up that time. You know, so I think it does that really well. So what's next? What's next on the agenda for you? What are you doing now? Oh well, first I just thank you for that for that very kind comment, and also to say I'd love it if if actually this book was adopted by some students, you know, kind of anywhere because I, I would be delighted if any students would read it and kind of engage with it. And I think you've also very articulately kind of summed up some of the kind of key elements. But I suppose I, I'm actually working on three projects at the moment. I'll, I'll keep uh, quite brief. I'm working on a book called Abolitionist Voices, which is an edited book which is looking at the history and different perspectives of abolitionism. And that's going to be published by Bristol University Press. Okay. Um, I'm also working on a book with Joe Sim, which is, again, an edited book, which is looking at issues around power, crime, harm and mystification, which kind of okay. feeds back into some of the themes that we've been talking about. And that's looking in particular at Stephen Box's work 
Books. Yeah, I mean, Steve. So he's kind of it's it's interesting. It's nineteen eighty three was the publication of 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 his book, um, Power Crime Mystification, and twenty twenty three is when wow. we're hoping to publish the kind of this edited collection in honor of that um, will be the kind of uh, the 40th anniversary. So that's kind of a, a book for Stephen Box and kind of on the corporate harm and state crime. And then I'm also following through the ethics. So the third project was actually a more longer term and it will take me a few years to kind of get this sorted. But this is a, a monograph uh, rather than a fragmented writings this time. It's looking at the ethics of responsiveness. So it's taken that notion of empathy and uh, responsiveness ethics in terms of solidarity and how we respond. Um, so I want to kind of bring out kind of what we do with the knowledge and how we respond and how we don't respond. So that's kind of my 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 big project is actually this last one, you know, kind of. So I'm trying to take that ethics, which is kind of finds its roots in in for abolition, to take that to the next part of the conversation and move on with Excellent. that. Excellent. Excellent. So this is the this is the part where you get to shamelessly self-promote. Who are you? What is the book? Who's it published by? Okay. I am a, a Dr. David Scott from the uh, Open University. Uh, my book is called For Abolition, Essays uh, on Prisons and Social Ethics. It's published by Waterside Press and it was published in November 2020. Uh, I'm I'm really pleased with the kind of the, the reviews the books had so far. Uh, it's been very very uh, well received by at least certain kind of people, uh, which is great. Uh, so I, I very much hope that anybody listening to this podcast would want to give it a, a kind of a go and have a look and see if there's anything in there that they might find interesting in terms of that broader debate around abolitionism, but also thinking in particular about the harms and injury and social death that characterises our prisons. And my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent. And I would just like to say to anyone listening to this, this is a really important book for, for criminology courses to, to actually carry. You know, there's a tendency to look at criminology through the sort of lens of practical criminology, whereas actually this calls into question what it is that we're actually doing. It challenges the criminal justice system. So unions need to buy this so they give their students more of a balanced view of what's going on. So thank you very much for listening to us on the New Book Network and we look forward to uh, hearing from you soon.